So obviously there's been a lot of conversation around ChatGPT and if you move in similar circles to me, that's pretty much all that you've been seeing for the last few months. Um, so I thought it would be useful just to have an opportunity to talk about ChatGPT, what it is, um, what it means, what it potentially means for us in higher education. There's a lot of concern around the implications for um, ChatGPT and other examples of generative AI. <clears throat> so I think maybe just to start with, um, does everyone here have a kind of a basic idea of what ChatGPT is? I don't mean the technical background, but essentially like what it does. Is it artificial intelligence? Well, it's artificial intelligence in, yes, in a very broad understanding of, of what that word means. So it would be difficult. Perhaps I don't, then no. <clears throat> okay. Uh, basically, it's for, for all intents and purposes, it's a website where it's got a little prompt where you write in a, a question and it gives you an answer. Uh, what's going on in the background is complicated and not something that I'm a technical expert on. So uh, essentially, it's a an example of machine learning specifically dedicated to the problem of understanding natural language. So computers typically understand computer language and getting them to understand human language is actually really difficult because there is so much subtlety and nuance in human language and trying to get a computer to understand what that means is very difficult. Over the last few years, we've seen massive progress in computers and their ability to understand human speech. And when I say understand, I'm not talking about a, a conscious subjective understanding in the way that we would understand that word, but it's able to give reasonable and plausible responses to questions and prompts that a human being would recognize as being similar to what another human being might say back to you. So two years ago, all the money in the world couldn't buy you this technology. It doesn't matter what government you were. Um, you could be the U.S. military and all of their billions, and you did not have access to this technology. And now it's available for free on a website that anyone in the world can access. <clears throat> so the progression of this technology is so fast. Um, there's not really been anything like it in our history in terms of how quickly something is evolving over time. Um, so usually it would take, you know, many years to reach 100 million users. ChatGPT got 100 million users in two weeks. Um, so in terms of scale and the number of people who are being affected by this, I think it's significant. It's going to explode in a way that we can't even comprehend because Microsoft has just secured the sole rights to integrate ChatGPT technology into all of their products. So at some point in the future, ChatGPT will be built into Word, Outlook, Excel. Um, and the, the, the promise of this technology is that we eventually move away from interacting with computers through a keyboard and a mouse. The idea is that we start interacting with computers through natural language, where we speak to a computer and it responds to us as if we were speaking to, to another person. So I think that's the... Um, the, the, the promise, whether we ever get there, um, I'm not sure, but, but that's what Microsoft's interest, um, is, is about. The concern for higher education is that 
ChatGPT can give really, really good responses to some quite complicated prompts. I was hoping to give some examples, but um, ChatGPT has been down for the last few days. Uh, so no one can actually get access to it at the moment. Um, I've been playing around with it for a few weeks, and I've heard from a few other members of staff in the school who have also been experimenting with it. Um, and I think that there are two main schools of thought. Either you look at the responses that ChatGPT gives you and you say, um, well, it's kind of cute and entertaining, but I don't really see how this impacts what I'm doing. Um, the other response is that you look at it and you say, well, it's it's OK. Like I can see how this might have utility, but it's it's not as good as a full professor. Um, it's only as good as a mediocre undergraduate student. Um, Tomorrow, this is going to be better than the mediocre undergraduate student. And in a few weeks' time, it's going to be better than that. And at some point, it will be at the level of a full professor in terms of the quality of the responses that it can give you. There's no technical reason why we should think that the progress of the development of generative AI is going to slow down. Um, there's so much money that's being poured into this from commercial entities that there's no stopping point. There's no natural stopping point where we can say, oh, okay, at this point, it's not going to keep evolving and getting better. So that would be my, that would be my position. There are other people who have different opinions and there's an enormous amount of conversation and discussion and controversy around where, where this ends. I think our immediate concern is that this gives pretty good responses to the kinds of questions that we might give students in their essays, in their assessments. As I mentioned in the email, there were two tests that I gave to ChatGPT. Both of them were kind of short versions of, of those tests. Um, Sarah was one of the people who shared her um, one of her assessment tasks with me and, and Miles Butler was the other person. Um, in, the, in the test that Miles gave, on a very, very strict Marking framework, he would have given it maybe 60%. Um, ChatGPT was too verbose in its responses. All of the responses were correct, but its, but its responses were too verbose and it didn't give, um, citations. Now, I didn't ask ChatGPT to limit its responses to a certain number of words. And if I had, it would have met that requirement. And if I had asked it for citations, it would have provided them and therefore met that requirement. And so in terms of the quality of the responses, if we only look at that, it would have scored between 70 and 80 percent for the assessment that um, Miles gave it. For Sarah's, um, it was much lower than that. I think it ended up um, with, I think, 18 out of 30 or something like that. Um, now, you can look at that. You can say, oh, oh, it only scored 18 out of 30. This is an algorithm that's performing at undergraduate level at a university course. Um, yes, it's only getting 18 out of 30. Tomorrow it'll get 20. In six months time, chat GPT will be replaced by GPT-4, the underlying technology, which will make this technology look like a quaint toy. So we're getting to a point where any question that we can conceivably ask our undergraduate students will be capable of being answered by a website. So that, that's a little bit of background um, and, and why I think it's important for us to have this conversation. 
I'm sorry, Helen, I've only just seen your, your hand up now. Do you want to go ahead? Yes, any questions, just interest. Um, when If you asked it to put citations in, does it put appropriate citations, do you know, or does it just literally sort of scan through and pick things that have the biggest search yeah. optimization? That's a, that's a great question. Um, so to answer it, I'm actually going to take a little bit of a detour. What ChatGPT does is it, does, it doesn't search for truth. It tries to answer the question that you asked. If it doesn't know what the answer to the question is, it makes the, it makes the answer up. So if you ask it to give you citations, it gives you citations. In the example that, that I've used, I asked ChatGPT to give me a list of articles that would be suitable for physiotherapy students that would provide them with an entry level understanding of artificial intelligence. It gave me three what I thought were perfect citations. The titles were perfect. Authors, page numbers, journals, everything. None of them existed. So it answered my question. It answered it very well. It looked very plausible, but it was completely incorrect. Now, you can also ask it questions like, um, what I thought was most interesting is when you ask it open-ended questions. If you go to ChatGPT and you look for an answer, it's likely going to be incorrect. It doesn't have access to the internet, so it can't find sources of information. It, it really is making stuff up. There was a book published a, a, quite a while ago called On Bullshit, and it's a philosophical approach to what it means to bullshit someone. The difference between a liar and a bullshitter is that a liar knows what the truth is and tries to obscure it from you. The liar cares about the truth. ChatGPT is a bullshitter in the philosophical sense that it doesn't care what is right or wrong. It will tell you whatever you want to know. Um, and there is no attempt to obscure truth. There is no attempt to find truth. All that it cares about is answering the question that you gave. Now, there's some conversation around chat, around GPT-4, which is the underlying model that ChatGPT is based on. GPT-4 is likely to not make that mistake. I think GPT-4 will find evidence for what it's saying. And I think that when it can't find the evidence, it's going to get to a point where it's going to say, I think that this is the answer to your question. However, I'm only 60% confident that that's correct. And I can't find a source for this response. I think it's going to be more like that. I think it's going to be like having a conversation with a fallible human being where we can't say with certainty that we have the answers to some questions that we're interested in. And we're going to caveat those responses by saying there's a there's a good likelihood that I'm wrong. I'm not really certain. Um, so I think that that's where we're going to get to. Go ahead, Helen. Oh, Ian sorry, was before me, I, I think. I just saw your hand out, Ian. Do you want to go ahead? Uh, yeah, thanks, Michael. So where does it get its answer from then? I guess would be my question. Yeah, that's a, a good question. So it makes it up. Essentially, what it's done is it's been trained on a massive corpus of information. And what it's the training process is that it determines the probability of the next word based on the previous word. So if this word is the, the probability of the next word being cat 
is 99%. So it assigns that word to the next part of the sentence. So it's taken all of this information and it's really just done a massive mathematical calculation on what words tend to follow other words. So it's not finding a source of evidence to support its responses to you. It is literally making up the response based on the prompt that you've given it. Does that make sense? It does. So it's very bizarre. Um, in academic offences committee the other day, the question was raised about this very thing. And we were saying, how much longer will it be before essentially chat GPT could theoretically answer an assignment question and um, it wouldn't come up on Turnitin, it wouldn't have been written by an essay mill, you know, to all intents and purposes, it would be completely undetectable. Yeah. Oh, I would say that, like, we're already there. There, there are papers that have been published written by ChatGPT where peer reviewers have said, this is original content. Um, ChatGPT is credited as the first author. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen quite a few things on academic Twitter about it and that sort of thing flagging up. I was going to say, Michael, because the other thing, it's an observation really, is that if this is only version 3 and version 4 is going to have faster, slicker algorithms and Microsoft are buying it, it's in their commercial interest to link it to a search engine next anyway, isn't it? So that it can find answers. It's already built into Bing. Yeah. So it's only a matter of time, surely. Yeah, there's a beta version of Bing where ChatGPT is built into it. And it's a conversational interface where it does find the source of information. Go ahead, Mary. So I, before you mentioned about the Bing thing, I was just going to ask, does it, so like Ian was saying, where does it get the answers from? Does it learn from, does it learn from its mistakes? Does it become more intelligent uh, in terms of its responses? And, and then the other thing I suppose is, is it a bit, does it learn from the mistakes of the collective as such as well. Yeah. So I, in my head, it's like the Borg. That's exactly what it's like. So, <laughs> so the reason that ChatGPT was created was so that OpenAI, the company behind GPT-3, could start running research projects on how we interact with it. So every time you're entering a prompt, that prompt is being incorporated into its learning algorithm. Every response that it generates where somebody says this was a good response, this was a bad response, all of that information is being incorporated into its learning cycle. So this massive experiment that we've all been engaged with has been part of the training data that is now being incorporated into um, into the next version of ChatGPT. And, it's and just so like in, how children learn language, isn't it? Sorry, I meant to put my hand up first, yeah, but it's just like how far. children learn language. Yeah, and and the, the the next version is going to be influenced by all of the conversations that have been happening with this version. And to be clear, ChatGPT is based on a very small subset of GPT-3 to now GPT-3.5, which is the underlying language model. So the version that we're actually being exposed to is a very small, very customized, bespoke version of GPT-3. Um, we're not even being exposed to the full potential of the underlying model. Go ahead, Jenny. 
helps my turn my mic on, doesn't it? Just um, obviously all update, won't it? But if students were deciding they're going to use this for assignments all at the same time or at a similar time, would they get a very high similarity score or would does it update that quickly that we could spot it through because of the similarity score that there was something going on? Okay, so there's there's a lot going on in the question. Um, I guess the first the first thing to point is that Turnitin is already starting to build um, checks into their next versions that will try to identify watermarks that are going to start being inserted into outputs that are generated by AI products. However, I can copy and paste the information that ChatGPT gives me. I can paste it into a plain text editor like Notepad, and it strips out all of that word all of the, the watermarks, and then I copy and paste it into, into Word. So I'm not really sure the value of those watermarks. Um, so I think Turnitin is rubbing their hands. They are loving this because a lot of universities are now going to run to Turnitin and say, protect us from the menace. Um, I don't think that the solution is to try and block it off. I think the solution is to intentionally build it into what we do because there's there's a few different things going on. I think our students are creating into a world where they will be expected to use new technologies like generative AI. So maybe not in health and social care. You, you, you may not see very quickly this being integrated into clinical practice, but there are other um, domains where this is already being incorporated into business as usual processes. If we're graduating students and we've been trying to hide this from them and put and prevent them from using it responsibly, then I think that we, you know, it would be the equivalent of graduating a student who doesn't know how email works. And I, I think that we can build it responsibility responsibly into our assessment practices. So as, a, as an example, and this doesn't apply to all assessment tasks, but you can intentionally give a student the task of using ChatGPT to generate a first draft of an assignment. And their actual assignment is to take on the role of a critical reviewer of the assignment that ChatGPT has produced. So the work that the student does is in critically reviewing the product of ChatGPT. Now, that only works for this version of ChatGPT because we know that it, it's a bullshitter. So the student will actually need to go and do quite a lot of research to determine whether or not the response from ChatGPT is a good response. In terms of the, the amount of effort, it, it's, it can take university professors quite a lot, a lot of time to determine whether or not the output from ChatGPT to, to sophisticated prompts is inappropriate. Um, if we ask our students to take on their critical work, I would say that they would actually be doing a better job than if we asked them to just write a plain essay. So obviously it's a simple example um, and it only works in certain contexts. But I think that in doing something like that, we would be fulfilling other mandates, for example, to graduate a student who's a critical thinker. So what are the tasks that we're giving our students that really develop critical thinking? Well, if we ask them to critique the output of an algorithm and to make decisions about where the algorithm did a good job, where it did a bad job, um, I think that's a pretty good example of critical thinking. It also means that our students are going to be more digitally literate because they're going to be probing this technology 
um, and finding out where it works well, where it doesn't work well. Um, you know, I've asked her to generate management plans for a 16-year-old girl with uh, cystic fibrosis, um, and it's an exemplary management plan. It's really good. Um, it could just as easily have put out something that was completely inappropriate. Um, so in order for us to understand what this is capable of, I think we need to start engaging with it, interacting with it, probing it and figuring out how we could potentially use this as part of our teaching. The alternative is that we try and block it. And some universities have blocked ChatGPT, that URL. You can't actually get to it from any university network. But students are just going to go around it. And at some point, when it's built into Word, then what? Like, are we going to stop using Word? Um, anyway, um, I see Helen and Sarah both have their hands up. I think Sarah was first. Not Sarah. Go, Helen. Sorry, I, I, if you haven't learned yet, Michael, sorry, I talk far too much. Um, I think one, it's almost that thing. I, you picked up one of the things I was going to say, which was about, you know, maybe we need to design assessments differently to, to, to use it. But the other thing is that maybe we even need to go right back and look at our learning and teaching strategy and think about what is it? Because obviously, if this kind of thing's learning that quickly, then generators of knowledge isn't what our students need to be in the future. They need to be people who can apply that knowledge and who have the soft skills to go where the machines can't. So maybe our whole assessment strategy needs to move away from the written word and more into those human bits that machines can't do. Yeah, I would say you've also touched on something that we haven't really talked about, and that's the fact that academics can use this. Um, so if you want to do research, you know, there's so many papers that are being published, even in if I take my very limited area of interest, there's more that's being published every day than I could possibly read in a lifetime. These language models are really good at summarizing information. And so the systematic review as a method of doing research is going to go away. Like, why would anybody do that? Um, language models are able to create better overviews of cutting edge research than human beings can, can. So as researchers, this is an incredibly powerful tool. I've taken some of my papers and submitted it to explain paper, which is, uh, it's just a different interface to the underlying chat, uh, underlying GBT3 model. You can submit a research paper and say, explain this to me in language that a, you know, six year old can understand. And, and it does that. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really, really powerful tool for academics as well. Um, and that's something that we haven't even started to, to think about. Uh, Rachel and Sarah, I'm not sure who. Go ahead, Sarah. Um, no, I was just going to say about this, about using the interface. I mean, there is already an issue for some learners in terms of the digital divide and international students in terms of if this is a language based tool. I'm not sure that that is going to be as accessible for them to use. But when when you submitted the, the test responses to me, you're absolutely right. What it didn't bring was any criticality. It was just lists of information. There was no decision making. So I was asking for decisions. It didn't seem to, to grasp that concept. And as you say, the answers, the responses, though they had some merit, um, they didn't have what Helen was talking about, which was the human element. So I want somebody to tell me 
what they're going to do, why, what the impact is and on what legislative grounds they're going to apply that. So I think that's quite a complex ask that that, you know, for anybody and certainly for um, machine learning, that's going to be quite difficult because it's a multi-stage process. But I'm not saying that it couldn't do it. And as you say, you could analyse the output and what the, the drawbacks were. But I am worried about students who maybe would face barriers if we're going to use this as a tool. So I've got a few responses. Um, like your your critique of the current version is legitimate. The next version, that critique won't be valid anymore. So we need to prepare for what's coming, not to seek refuge and solace in, you know, the shortcomings of the existing model. So we can't look for all the ways that the existing model falls down because that's going to disappear in three months time when the next version gets released. Um, I think the other thing about language is that what's, what's really important, and I think how this can be an incredible advantage, is that this is a translation machine. So at some point, this technology will be built into teams where you can speak your language and I will hear it in my language. It will do real-time translation built into Teams. That's what this technology is actually aiming for. So, like, when we think about language, we need to, we need to think about it in a much broader sense, because this is not an English tool. This is a language tool. And so I think that we can also start thinking about how this provides enormous benefits to our students who are not first language English speakers. Imagine taking a, a, a research paper, uploading it into explain paper and saying, take this paper, simplify it and explain it to me in, I don't know, Portuguese. Like th that's coming. That's just around the corner. Go ahead, Rachel. It's just a comment more than anything that we, um, we've just, we've just signed a book contract. And as part of that, they've come back to us and said, here, here is this wonderful software that can run you a systematic review for each and every chapter and we can generate all of the references. And they took us through it and they showed us how it does it. And it produces a synopsis of every single abstract that would be found within that search in such a lovely way. And we were like, this is literally our work done for us. If the search terms are right, if you get that that initial sort of um, sort of start right. And it was fantastic. So in terms of, you know, the benefits of those tools, it's really quite interesting. And I can see see exactly how it's going to sort of take off. Yeah, it's it's either very exciting or very scary. <laughs> yeah, both probably. <laughs> but Does anyone, I see we, um, see Ian sent a message. I can't see your, your message here. Does anyone have any um, other questions? I see we're coming up to the end of our, end of our time. I'm, I'm going to be doing another one of these um, sessions um, I think that this will probably be an ongoing conversation. Um, I think we need to we need to come to terms with with what this means for us. Um, I don't know if there are any simple solutions, but I think that the solution is not going to be to pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, I, I think that we need to grab it with both both hands and and run with it and see how we can use it. Um, there's a, a saying that's been around in in clinical practice for a while. The um, the clinician, clinicians won't be replaced by AI, but clinicians who use AI will replace those who don't. Um, and I, I don't know, maybe, um, 
But I think it's a it's an interesting perspective where I think if we can use this to amplify the work that we want to do and be better at what we value, I think it could be very powerful. Um, but I think, we, you know, we always have to come back to this question around values. What is it that we want to do? What is it that we want to achieve? What is our guiding North Star? Um, and does this get us closer to that? Um, so I think that's the conversation that, that I'd like to have. How do we use it responsibly to achieve the goals that are important to us? I see Helen and Ian put their hands up. Sorry. It's mine. So again, it's just a, a fascination and an interest question. And you probably know more than I do. Can it make posters yet? Uh, well, ChatGPT is the text interface for the underlying language model, but that underlying language model can generate images, videos, audio. It needs about 10 seconds of audio to be able to replicate speech perfectly. So I can give it 10 seconds of my voice, and you can then go to a, a website where you type in a piece of text, and it will read it to you in my voice. Um, video production is also... Um, trivially easy now. Um, so you can give it a textual description of characters, storylines, and put that, that's why it's called generative AI. It generates content. It generates video, audio, video, um, images and, and text. So at so some point, a lot of, at yeah, some point, a lot of the be, approaches would use, it would, would use, yeah. wouldn't it? At some point, you'll be able to use this to create images for whatever you want to do, videos, um, Think about, you know, introductory videos for your courses, um, you know, anything that we might want to create, this thing is going to be able to do. Go ahead, Ian. Yeah, so I guess um, if we think back sort of 30 plus years ago, I remember when I started my training um, and Sinal only just came out and in its day, it was a great big bank of CDs that sat in a multi CD player and, you know, it got updated on a sort of monthly basis by the library. Um, and, and that only came in during my training. Before that, it was a case of sitting in the library, going along to journals and books that mm. you thought were going to be relevant and yanking them off the shelf and scouring the contents pages, trying to find, um, you know, what you were looking for. And I guess fast forward 30 years and given that you can go onto Blackboard and um, you can go onto the dashboards rather and you can see how many discrete visits our students make into the library, it's it's woefully small, you know, in some cases once or twice in a year if we're lucky. So, you know, the point is our students now don't really use a, a, a physical library in the in the sort of traditional sense. They they go online and they gather all their information via the Internet. And I suppose, you know, if you look at this in its most sort of broadest sense, you know, this is just a a further opportunity, I guess, to um, simplify. I guess it links in with what Rachel was saying about her, um, you know, ability to search for, um, you know, work that it would normally take hours and hours and days and months and even years in some cases to do a systematic review. Um, this is something that, you know, potentially could rattle that off in, in literally seconds. Um, so it's just changing the mindset 
I guess if anything, it'll just mean that um, people won't take six or seven years to do PhDs in the future. <laughs> I would say I would say that the the my kind of short takeaway from this um, from the the reading and things that I've done about ChatGPT is not to use it to look for answers, but to use it to look for ideas, um, because ideas are not right or wrong. Um, and so if we ask it these open-ended questions that generate you know, prompts for more thinking, for more reflection. I think that could also be a very powerful way to to use the tool. So don't go to it looking for answers to specific questions, um, but ask it to generate responses. Well, one of the things that I asked it to do was I asked it to describe the feeling of loneliness. And it was poignant and touching and moving. This thing that doesn't understand any of the words that I've actually asked it, it's very convincing. And then I said, um, what should I do if I feel lonely? And the response that it gave me was excellent. Like, you know, it's okay. You'll be all right. Um, everyone experiences loneliness. Have you talked to someone? You know, you need to get out there and, and you know, have conversations with people that you trust. And, um, you know, it's it's interesting and a little bit like touching almost um, to, to have that kind of a conversation. When When it becomes available again, just experiment with it and don't try to use it to find answers to technical questions. Think of it as having a conversation almost with like a trusted friend um, because th th we're already seeing this thing being used in therapy. Um, it, it's, it's only a small step between now and when the NHS starts using a version of this to provide counseling and guidance for patients. That, that's not even a maybe. They're already doing it with algorithms that are vastly inferior to ChatGPT. So try to, just when you have an opportunity, try to not use it to look for answers, but to use it to engage in kind of open-ended conversation. And it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say. Um, it's It's going to be an interesting an interesting few months. Um, at some point, it will stabilize, and this will just become part of, you know, it'll be built into your phone, it'll be built into your TV. Um, it's no different, really, to Alexa and Siri and, and all the other interfaces. It just adds a really, really powerful model on the back end that is going to be very, very um, different to the kinds of conversations that we're already having with machines. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for coming. I hope it was interesting um, and useful. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Really interesting. Thank you. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Keep well. Bye. 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 Bye.